Chapter Nine of My Dog and I by Robert Ballantyne. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Recorded by Allison Hester. Chapter Nine, on the scent, but puzzled. It was a considerable time after the fire before my leg permitted me to resume my studies and my duties among the poor. Meanwhile, I had become a regularly established inmate of Mr. Dobson's house, and was half jocularly styled Dr. McTougall's assistant. I confess that I had some hesitation at first in accepting such generous hospitality, but, feeling that I could not help myself till my legs should recover, I became reconciled to it. Then, as time advanced, the doctor, who was an experimental chemist, as well as a jack-of-all-trades, found me so useful to him in his laboratory that I felt I was really earning my board and lodging. Meanwhile, Lily Blythe had been sent to visit an aunt of Dr. McDougall's in Kent for the benefit of her health. This was well. I felt it to be so. I knew that her presence would have a disturbing influence on my studies, which were by that time nearly completed. I felt, also, that it was madness in me to fall in love with a girl whom I could not hope to marry for years, even if she were willing to have me at all, which I very much doubted. I therefore resolved to put the subject away from me, and devote myself heartily to my profession, in the spirit of all that word which tells us that whatsoever our hands find to do, we should do it with all our might. Success attended my efforts. I passed all my examinations with credit, and became not only a fixture in the doctor's family, but as he earnestly assured me, a very great help to him. Of course, I did not mention the state of my feelings toward Lily Blythe to anyone, not being in the habit of having confidants, except, indeed, to Dumps. In the snug little room just over the front door, which had been given to me as a study, I was wont to pour out many of my secret thoughts to my doggie as he sat before me with cocked ears and demonstrative tail. "'You've been the making of me, Dumps,' said I one evening, not long after I had reached the first round of the ladder of my profession. "'It was you who introduced me to Lily Blythe and through her to Dr. McDougall, and you may be sure I shall never forget that. Nay, you must not be too demonstrative. When your mistress left you under my care, she said, half jocularly, no doubt, that I was not to steal your heart from her. Wasn't that absurd, eh? As if any heart could be stolen from her. Of course, I cannot regain your heart, Dumps, and I will not even attempt it. Honor bright, as Robin Slider says. By the way, that reminds me that I promised to go down and see old Mrs. Willis this very night, so I'll leave you to the tender mercies of the little McTougals. As I walked down the strand, my last remark to Dumps recurred to me, and I could not help smiling as I thought of the tender mercies to which I had referred. The reader already knows that the juvenile McTougals were somewhat bloodthirsty in their notions of play. When Dubs was introduced to their nursery, by that time transferred from Dobson's dining room to an upper floor, they at once adopted him with open arms. Dumps seemed to be willing, and fortunately turned out to be a dog of exceptionally good nature. He was also tough. 
No amount of squeezing, bruising, pulling of the ears or tail, falling upon him, either accidentally or on purpose, could induce him to bite. He did, indeed, yell hideously at times, when much hurt, and he snarled, barked, yelped, growled, and showed his teeth continually, but it was all in play, for he was dearly fond of romps. Fortunately, the tall nurse had been born without nerves. She was wont to sit serene in a corner, darning innumerable socks, while a tornado was going on around her. Dumps became a sort of continual sacrifice. On all occasions when a criminal was to be decapitated, a burglar hanged, or a martyr burned, Dumps was the victim, and many a time he was rescued from impending and real death by the watchful nurse, who was too well aware of the innocent ignorance of her ferocious charges to leave Dumps entirely to their tender mercies. On reaching Mrs. Willis's little dwelling, I found young Slider officiating at the tea-table. I could not resist watching him a moment through a crack in the door before entering. "'Now, then,' said he, "'here you are. Set to work, old sneezer, with a will.' The boy had got into a facetious way of calling Mrs. Willis by any term of endearment that suggested itself at the moment, which would have been highly improper and disrespectful if it had not been the outflow of pure affection." The crack in the door was not large enough to permit of my seeing Mrs. Willis herself as she sat in her accustomed window with the spout and chimney pot view. I could only see the withered old hand held tremblingly out for the smoking cup of tea, which the boy handed to her with a benignant smile, and I could hear the soft voice say, "'Thank you, Robin, dear boy, so like.' "'I tell you what it is, Granny.' returned Slider with a frown. I'll give you up and you over to the police if you go on comparing me to other people in that way. Now then, have some muffins. They're all hot and soaked in butter. Oh, gummy, just the very thing for your teeth. Fire away now. What's the use of me and Dr. McTougall fetching you nice things if you won't eat them? "'But I will eat them, Robin, thankfully.' "'That ain't the way, old woman,' returned the boy, "'helping himself largely to the veins which he so freely dispensed. "'It's not thankfully, but heartily you ought to eat them. "'Both, Robin, both. "'Not at all, Granny. "'We asked a blessing fuss now, didn't we? "'Vell, then, what we've got to do next is go in and win heartily.' Arter that, is time enough to be thankful. What a boy it is, responded Mrs. Willis. I saw the withered old hand disappear with a muffin in it in the direction of the old mouth, and at this point I entered. The very man I wanted to see, exclaimed Slider, jumping up with what I thought was unusual animation, even for him. Come along, doctor, just in time for grub. Miss W. hain't eat up all the muffins yet. Fresh cup and saucer, clean plate, ditto knife, no need for a fork. Now then, sit down. Accepting this hearty invitation, I was soon busy with a muffin, while Mrs. Willis gave a slow, elaborate, and graphic account of the sayings and doings of Master Slider, 
which account, I need hardly say, was much in his favor, and I am bound to add that he listened to it with pleased solemnity. Now then, old flatterer, when you've quite done, perhaps you'll tell the doctor that I want a weeks of leave of absence, and then perhaps you'll listen to what him and me's got to say on that point. Just keep a stuffin' yourself with muffins, and don't speak. The old lady nodded pleasantly and began to eat with apparently renewed appetite, while I turned in some surprise. A week's leave of absence, said I. Just so, a week's leave of absence, furlough if you prefers to call it. The truth is, I wants a holiday very bad. Granny says so, and I think she's right. Do you think my constitution's made of brass or cast iron or bell metal that I should be able to york on and on forever, black, black, blackened boots and shoes without a holiday? Why, lawyers, merchants, bankers, even doctors, needs a holiday now and then. How much more shoe blacks? Well, said I with a laugh, there's no reason why shoe blacks should not require and desire a holiday as much as other people. Only it's unusual, because they cannot afford it, I suppose. Ah, that's just where the shoe pinches. As an old gentleman shouted to me the other day with a whack of his umbrella when I scrubbed his corns too hard. Right you are, old stumps, says I, but you'll have to pay tuppence fardin hextra for that there whack. Or be took up for assault and battery. Do you know that gentleman larfed? He did, like a hyena, and paid the tuppence down like a man. I let him off the farden in consideration that he ain't got one, and I had no change. Well, to return to the point, which was what the old topper remarked to his wife every night. I've been saving up of late. Saving up, have you? Yes, them penny banks has done it. Why, it ain't a virtue to be saving nowadays, or good, or that sort of thing. What between city missionaries and Sunday schools and penny banks and cheap whittles and grannies like this here old sneezer, it's hardly possible for a young feller to go wrong, even if he was to try. Yes, I've been and saved enough to give me a week's holiday, so I'm going and have my holiday in the north. My elf requires it. Saying this, Young Slider began to eat another muffin with a degree of zest that seemed to give the lie direct to his assertion, so that I could not refrain from observing that he did not seem to be particularly ill. "'Ain't I, though?' he remarked, elongating his round, rosy face as much as possible. "'That's cause you judge too much by appearances. It ain't my body that's wrong. It's my spirit. That's what's the matter with me.' If you only saw the inside of my mind, you'd be astonished. I thoroughly believe you, said I, laughing. And do you really advise him to go, Granny? Yes, my dear, I do, replied Mrs. Willis in her sweet, though feeble tones. You've no idea how he's been slaving and working about me. I have strongly advised him to go, and, you know, good Mrs. Jones will take his place. She's as kind to me as a daughter. 
The mention of the word daughter set the poor creature meditating on her great loss. She sighed deeply and turned her poor old eyes on me with a yearning, inquiring look. I was accustomed to the look by this time, and having no good news to give her, had latterly got into a way of taking no notice of it. That night, however, my heart felt so sore for her that I could not refrain from speaking. "'Ah, dear Granny,' said I, laying my hand gently on her wrist, "'would that I had any news to give you, but I have none, at least not at present. But you must not despair. I have failed up to this time. It's true, although my inquiries have been frequent and carefully conducted.' But, you know, such a search takes a long time, and, and London is a large place. The unfinished muffin dropped from the old woman's hand, and she turned with a deep sigh to the window, where the blank prospect was a not inapt reflection of her own blank despair. Never more, she said. Never more. Hope thou in God, for thou shalt yet praise him, who is the health of thy countenance, and thy God, was all that I could say in reply. Then I turned to the boy, who sat with his eyes cast down, as if in deep thought, and engaged him in conversation on other subjects, by way of diverting the old woman's mind from the painful theme. When I rose to go, Slider said he would call Mrs. Jones to mount guard, and give me a convoy home. No sooner were we in the street than he seized my hand, and, in a voice of unusual earnestness, said, "'I've got on her tracks.' "'Whose tracks? What do you mean?' "'On Edie's, to be sure. Edie Willis.' Talking eagerly and fast as we walked along, Little Slider told me how he had first been put on the scent by his old friend and fellow waif, the slogger. That juvenile burglar, chancing to meet with Slider, entertained him with a relation of some of his adventures. Among others, he mentioned having, many months before, been out one afternoon with a certain Mr. Brassy, rambling about the streets with an eye to any chance business that might turn up, when they observed a young and very pretty girl looking in at various shop windows. She was obviously a lady, but her dress showed that she was very poor. Her manner and color seemed to imply that she was fresh from the country. The two thieves at once resolved to fleece her. Brassy advised the slogger to come to the soft dodge over her and entice her, if possible, into a neighboring court. The slogger, agreeing, immediately ran and placed himself on a doorstep, which the girl was about to pass. Then he covered his face with his hands and began to groan dismally while Mr. Brassy, with native politeness, retired from the scene. The girl, having an unsuspicious nature and a tender heart, believed the tale of woe which the boy unfolded, and went with him to see his poor mother, who had just fallen down in a fit, and was dying at that moment for want of someone to attend to her. She suggested, indeed, that the slogger should run to the nearest chemist, but the slogger said it would be of no use and might be too late. Would she just run round and see her? The girl acted on the spur of the moment. In her exuberant sympathy, she hurried down an alley, round a corner, under an archway, and walked straight into the lion's den. 
There Mr. Brassy, the lion, promptly introduced himself and requested the loan of her purse and watch. The poor girl at once understood her position and turned to fly, but a powerful hand on her arm prevented her. Then she tried to shriek, but a powerful hand on her mouth prevented that also. Then she fainted. Not wishing to be found in an awkward position, Mr. Brassy and the slogger searched her pockets hastily and, finding nothing therein, retired precipitately from the scene, taking her little dog with them. As they did so, the young girl recovered, sprang wildly up, and rushing back through the court and alley, dashed into the main thoroughfare. The two thieves saw her attempt to cross, saw a cab horse knock her down, saw a crowd rush to the spot, and then saw no more, owing to pressing engagements requiring their immediate presence elsewhere. "'There, that's what the slogger told me,' said Little Slider, with flushed cheeks and excited looks. "'And I made him give me an exact description of the gal, which was a facsimilar of the picture painted of Miss Edie Willis by her own grandmother.' as like as two black cats this is interesting very interesting my boy said i stopping and looking at the pavement but i fear that it leaves us no clue with which to prosecute the search of course it don't rejoined robin with one of his knowing looks but do you think i'd go and aggravate myself about the thing if i hadn't more to say than that well what more do you have to say just this that ever since my talk with the slogger i've been making very particular inquiries at all the chemists and hospitals round about where he said the accident happened and i've discovered one hospital where i happens to know the porter and i got him to investigate and he found there was a case of a young gal run over on the very day this happened she got feverish he says and didn't know what she was saying for months, and nobody come to inquire arter her. And when she began to get well, she sent to Whitechapel to inquire for her grandmother, but her grandmother was gone, nobody knowed where. Then the young gal got wuss, then she got better, and then she left saying she'd go back to her old home in York, for she was sure the old lady must have returned there. So that's the reason why I'm going to recruit my elf in the north, do you see? But before I go, wouldn't it be better that you should make some investigations at the hospital? I heartily agreed to this, and went without delay to the hospital, where, however, no new light was thrown on the subject. On the contrary, I found what Slider had neglected to ascertain, that the name of the girl in question was not Edie Willis but eva bright a circumstance which troubled me much and inclined me to believe we had got on a false scent but when i reflected on the other circumstance of the case i still felt hopeful the day of edie's disappearance tallied exactly with the date of the robbing of the girl by brassy and the slogger her personal appearance, too, as described by the slogger, corresponded exactly with the description given of her granddaughter by Mrs. Willis, and, above all, the sending of a messenger from the hospital by the girl to inquire for her grandmother, Mrs. Willis, were proofs too strong to be set aside by the mystery of the name. 
In these circumstances, I also resolved to take a holiday and join Robin Slider in his trip to York. End of chapter 9